Welcome to Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I read about a journalist this week who was assigned to the Jerusalem Bureau, leaving an apartment overlooking the Wailing Wall. Every day when she would look out, she would see an old Jewish man praying vigorously. So one day she went down and introduced herself to the old man. She asked, I see that you come here every day to this wall. How long have you done that and what exactly are you praying for? The old man replied, I have come here to pray every day for the last 25 years. In the morning, I pray for world peace and for the brotherhood of man. I then go home, have a cup of tea, and I come back and pray for the eradication of illness and disease from the earth. The journalist was amazed. How does it make you feel to come to pray here every day for 25 years and pray for these things? The old man looked at her sadly and said, well, it feels like I'm talking to a wall. I wonder if you've ever felt like that old man. Personally, I find praying difficult. Do you? Now, I have no problem studying, and I figured out this week I've read over a thousand books, but praying has never came easily to me. Now, some praying is no more than just wishful thinking. I'm not talking about that. Real praying is when we speak to God, knowing that he hears us and he takes what we say seriously. Is that possible? And if so, how is it possible? I think I have some idea of what the Apostle Paul meant when he spoke of his friend Epaphras struggling in prayer, or when he mentioned striving in his praying. Prayer really does take a concerted effort. I understand the words of Romans 8.26 that says, Sometimes, we do not know what we pray for. Often that's exactly how I feel. I am aware that I need to continue steadfastly in prayer, and yet I often do not find it easy. So why is praying difficult for many people? It's not as though it's a difficult thing to do. I mean, a child can pray. And perhaps that's part of it. I wonder, do you have to be an adult to see the problems of praying? Children have no problem whatsoever asking their parents for what they need or even want. Why? Because they truly believe that their parents love them. Conversely, those who have doubts about God, which is what adults tend to do, will obviously have doubts about praying. Our difficulties in praying can be an expression of our uncertainty, our weak faith, or just our unbelief. On the other hand, even those who are clear about the God who is there and confident in their faith in Him may have doubts about whether Almighty God really wants to hear from little old me. We can think we can trust God to be good enough, wise enough, and powerful enough to rule the entire world, including my little part of the world. Why would God want, 
or need any kind of interference from me with my prayers. We can find ourselves asking or believing in God, or at least thinking we do, but at the same time find it hard to believe in praying. This morning and next week, we're going to see how Solomon felt about prayer and the lessons that we can learn from him. Look at verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands towards heaven. We have learned that King Solomon's temple was to be a house of prayer, so it was only appropriate for it to be dedicated with intercession. The prayer the king offers here is one of the longest and most important prayers in the entire Bible. And with typical wisdom, Solomon gives us a good biblical model for intercession, not just when we are dedicating a church building, but any time we go to God in prayer. That tells me that there is a time to pray long prayers, but probably prayers in public should not fall into that category. Jesus even castigated the Pharisees for, as a pretense, making long prayers in a public setting. As a pastor, sometimes I'm called to pray in public. And whenever that happens, I always try to remember something I heard, and it is this. The first three minutes you pray, the people pray with you. The second three minutes you pray, they pray for you. And the last three minutes you pray, they pray against you. Now, I found that to be sound advice. Verse 22 says, Solomon stood and spread out his hands. Now, our traditional posture for prayer is in hands folded and eyes closed was unknown to the Jews. Their posture was to look up in faith towards God in heaven and then lift out their open hands to show their poverty and their expectancy as they awaited an answer. So standing with outstretched arms was a, a gesture of having an openness to God. The Puritan Matthew Henry said, He spread forth his hands as it were to offer up the prayer from an open and large heart and to present it to heaven and also to receive thence with both arms the mercy which he prayed for. Solomon understood that the highest service he could render to his people as their king was to just pray for them. And the people were indeed blessed to have such a king. So are we. The Bible says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And so as you look at King Solomon standing before the altar in the presence of his people, and as you hear his prayer, consider the wonder that our King, Jesus Christ, is also at this moment, the Bible says, interceding for us. This is at the heart of the gospel truth where we are told, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, and it is that man, Christ Jesus. Solomon was standing in the courtyard of the temple directly in front of the great bronze altar that was used for making the blood sacrifice. Now this establishes a proper basis for Solomon's prayer. Why? 
Because we sinners approach, when sinners approach a holy God, they must come with a sacrifice to atone for their sins. This is one of the many reasons why Christians end their prayers with, in Jesus' name. That is not the Christian equivalent of saying over and out. By saying this, we are claiming the cross of Christ as our atonement for our sins and the basis for our access to God through prayer. And often people sometimes think of prayers just asking God for things that they want. And certainly it is appropriate to ask God for what we need. But prayer is also a way of asking God for the things that God wants. And the way we know what God wants is through his word and by believing in his promises the same way that Solomon did. When the king prayed for the throne of Israel, he was not pursuing his own ambitions, but was standing on the promises of God. Simply put, he was putting God first. And we have to be careful with what or who is on the throne of our hearts. And it's easy to identify what or who is on the throne. How? All you have to do is simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your loyalty. At the end of that trail, you're going to find a throne. And whatever or whomever is on that throne is what is actually of highest value in your life. On that throne is what we really and truly worship. Now, sure, not too many of us walk around saying, I worship my stuff. I worship my Xbox. I worship this pleasure. I worship her. I worship him. I worship my body. The older you get, you don't do that. I worship me. <laughs> but the trail never lies. Now, we may say that we value this thing or that thing more than any other, but the volume of our actions speaks way louder than our words ever can. Look at verse 23 with me. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping the covenant and showing faithfulness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. The God to whom we pray is incomparable. Solomon prays, O oh Lord God, there is no one like you. God is unique and he is unequaled. Therefore, we must pray on the basis of what he has chosen to reveal about himself in the scripture and not on what we would like to think or imagine about him. Sometimes people will say, well, my God wouldn't do this or my God wouldn't allow that. The only problem with that is their God doesn't really exist. Unless you count the one staring back at them from the mirror. You see, the true God is the king of everything. 
And sadly, many Christians today may not feel the punch of that. We may appreciate God's faithfulness, but we might not think him incomparable for it. That, however, is Solomon's point here. He is saying, scour the nooks, the crannies, the corners of all the galaxies and all the universe, and you will find no God like Yahweh who keeps covenant and covenant love to his servants. So as we come to God in prayer, we should begin by praising him for the unique attributes of his divine being. Now, we do not do this because we're just trying to get on his good side or butter him up or try to flatter him into giving us what we really want. We do it because it is the absolute truth about the way things are. There's no one else like him. He is the one and the only true God. So as we pray, we praise him for who he is, acknowledging his faithful, incomparable, promise-keeping love. But that can be difficult, and this is the reason why. We can have some difficulty holding immensity and intimacy together. We can ponder one or the other, but the combination can stretch our theological elastic. But if we can't trust God to keep the big promises of his coming kingdom, then surely if we can trust him to do that, we can trust him to keep all of the smaller promises that he has made to us in Christ and thus pray to him on that basis. Yes, sometimes this is precisely the difficulty. Although we truly believe that God's kingdom is going to come, we can have trouble believing he's going to help us resolve a $500 dispute with the insurance company. Or he's going to give us the grace to deal with that irritating person at work we have to work with every day. Rather than trusting God for the little things in life, we quibble with him about he's managing our affairs. What we ought to do instead is take a firm stand on the promises of God. He has promised to forgive us our sins, provide for our basic needs, and give us something useful to do in this world. So we should pray in faith, asking him to forgive us our debts, give us our daily bread, and put us in the right place to use our gifts for his glory. When we pray this way, he will surely answer that prayer. For we are asking God to do the very things that he has promised to do. Verse 24, please. You have kept with your servant, my father David, that which you promised him. You have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Now then, Lord, God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not be deprived of a man to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons are careful about their way to walk before me as you have walked. Now then, God of Israel, let your words please be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. When God told David that because he was a man of war and he couldn't build him the house, he tempered his message by saying, but instead, I'm going to build 
you a house and that there will always be someone in your lineage to occupy the throne of Israel. Now, of course, this promise finds its fulfillment and culmination in the son of David, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns forever. But no other God has ever promised an eternal kingship and then delivered on that promise except God, the one and only. He is a promise-keeping God who always keeps his promises to his people. That tells us that God is not just talk. He not only says things, but he also does things. And when he does those things, he does exactly what he promised to do. The only true God is totally loyal, absolutely trustworthy, and incomparably faithful. So Solomon is hoping in this, and his hope is founded on God's word. But that hope is not just wishful thinking or giddy optimism spawned by the excitement of the moment. Rather, it's a real hope that comes from applying the realistic, realistic word of a realistic God. And anything else this morning, my friends, is not true hope. Solomon's citation of God's promise in verse 25 is very close to what he heard from his father David back in chapter 2, verse 4. The condition of, if only your sons will pay close attention to their way to walk before me, that must be taken with utter seriousness as subsequent history is going to show us. God's promised king must be obedient. And yet that promise remains certain and in a sense unconditional. Why? Because God himself will provide the ultimate obedient king. What I mean is David's historic kingdom will be lost because of the disobedience of himself and his sons. That's the whole story of First and Second Kings. But the promised kingdom will be established forever by a greater son of David. And that is to be the central message of the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi and then all of the New Testament. And so, if walking with God is the condition of this promise, then implicit in Solomon's prayer was a request for his own continued faithfulness in walking with God and also a request that his sons would do the same. But sadly, as we're going to see, many of Solomon's sons failed to walk with God, and their disobedience is going to be Israel's downfall. After Solomon, the kingdom will be divided and defeated, and the people are going to be carried off into exile. Yet, eventually, Solomon's petitions for the house of David were answered in the person and the work of Jesus who is David's royal son and the king of the kingdom of God. Jesus walked with God in all his ways, perfectly obeying the will of his father all of the time. He walked with God all the way to the cross where he surrendered his body for crucifixion by dying for our sins. Verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Nevertheless, 
Turn your attention to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, Lord my God. Listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, so that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there to listen to the prayer which your servant will pray towards this place. Solomon had built a beautiful house for God. But would God really live there? That's the question. Would the incomparably loving and faithful God dwell in this temple? After all, what would a temple be without God? We sometimes ask the same things in ministry as we consider the work of this church. Is God really with us or not? Is he involved in what we are doing or are we just operating without him? But sooner or later, everyone asks that same question at the personal level, especially in times of crisis. Are you really there, Lord? Are you, are you, are you really in my situation or not? As far as the temple was concerned, King Solomon he could never put God in a box. Even a box as big and beautiful as was, the, as was the temple at Jerusalem. Really, the very idea was absurd. Behold, said Solomon, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. God is transcendent. He is high above the heavens. How then could he ever be contained in anything upon this earth? God is immense as his invisible being fills the entire universe. So how could he ever be held within the four walls of any building? As Solomon prayed, he was overwhelmed between the greatness of God and the insignificance of the work he had done in building this temple. How could Almighty God, the God of all the heavens, dwell in a temple made with men's hands? Solomon connected prayer to the temple as it was the unique place on earth where God had chosen to place his glory. But the king was under no illusion about this temple. It may have been a glorious building to humans, but God is God. And he is immense beyond our imagination. He created space, and then he fills it with his own being, and yet somehow he also overflows it. No wonder he asked, will God really dwell upon earth? Well, clearly not, not in any literal sense, since the heavens cannot contain him. So Solomon was right when he said, I realize that this house that I have built you cannot possibly contain you. How big is God? Just to give you an idea, the Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years long. That means cruising at the speed of light it would take you 100,000 years to travel from one end of it to the other. But get this, our Milky Way is just a speck in the known universe. And yet, God, and yet Isaiah tells us that God holds all the heavens 
in the palm of his hand. No wonder, David asked, what is man that thou art mindful of him? We're so puny. And yet, this God who is so huge has chosen to relate to us through the person of his son. A.W. Tozer writes, The gulf that separates the creator and the creature, the gulf between the being we call God and all other beings, is a great and vast and yawning gulf. If you do not engage in deep thinking, it may not seem so amazing. But if you have given yourself to frequent thoughtful consideration, you are astonished at the bridging of the great gulf between God and not God. What Tozer is saying is the gulf between God and human beings is a whole lot bigger than probably what we've imagined. It's not just that he is infinite and we are finite. He is almighty and we are puny. He is omniscient and we know very little. All that is true. And it makes the possibility of prayer just those things extraordinary. But more than all of that, we are sinners And he is the Holy One. Here Solomon's insight was profound. The most important thing that needed to happen between God and praying people was that God would forgive. Solomon realized that God's willingness to dwell with with his people was wholly an act of grace. Yet at the same time, God had given his word, my name shall be there. That means the omnipresent Lord of the universe had committed himself to that temple. God is lofty, holy, and mysterious, yet approachable and personal at the same time. The temple will serve as the physical symbol of those divine realities. Here the unapproachable Lord becomes approachable and ready to help those who worship, sacrifice, and pray. Now, if you travel through the Middle East, you quickly become aware that Muslims are careful to pray towards Mecca, and Jews are careful to pray towards Jerusalem. But followers of Christ, we have no such concerns. And there is a profound difference that is directly related to the passage we are studying this morning. In John chapter 4, a woman asked Jesus a significant question about worship, about whether you should worship in Jerusalem or Samaria. The Lord responded, A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for those are the kind of worshipers that the Father is seeking. There is now no physical altar to which we are to bring our sacrifices, No geographical location we are to turn in prayer. There is no central building in which we are to worship because God's presence is uniquely present wherever we gather. Even a building as palatial as this one. When the Lord Jesus died and rose again, he rendered the temple obsolete. As the book of Hebrews says, That is to say that there is not a temple. Individual believers, local congregations, and the church universal are all spoken of as the temple of the Lord. But church buildings never are. There is no special physical dwelling place of God on the earth in this present age. 
God's temple consists of followers of Christ who bear his name before a watching world. And that, my friends, is an awesome responsibility. The house Solomon built was God's idea. He had promised, my name will be there. God promised to make himself accessible by means of that house. It would be the the place of his name. This is a little difficult to grasp, but it is important. Here is the fundamental difference about between religion and what the Bible is about. Religion may, de- may be defined as human attempts to relate to the divine. Religion consists of human activities, perhaps rituals in special places at special times by special people. Such religion is ultimately futile. The God who is really there cannot be reached by human efforts, thoughts, imaginations, or spirituality. Since humanity was expelled from the presence of the Lord, it was not possible for human beings to find their way back to God, even if they wanted to. We cannot do it. The Bible is about something else altogether, namely, what God has done to make himself accessible to us. The critical point is that God is only accessible where, when, and how he has made that possible. Every human attempt to reach God in any other way is a delusion. Only a Christian believer knows God's vindication. The New Testament term for that is justification. Now this is strange because we all know that we are sinners. The wonder and the mystery of the gospel of God is that the just judge justifies or vindicates the one who has faith in Christ. That means we are righteous, but only because we are forgiven. So we need to appreciate that everything the house built by Solomon represented is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the new temple. Jesus makes praying possible. The name by which we pray, confident that God will hear, forgive, and act, is only the name of Jesus. The remarkable promises we hear from Jesus concerning asking in his name are the fulfillment of what Solomon had prayed for. The possibility of this kind of praying is really astonishing. We are talking about requests being uttered by mere humans like us, being heard by Almighty God, and then granted. How can that be? Only because Jesus died can this astonishing thing be made possible. And yet, this is the very thing that God desires to do, as he loves to hear his children pray. And for the sake of his name, he loves to answer our prayers. He is not blind and deaf like the other gods to whom people pray. Yet, this is one of the reasons why he is so incomparable. He is a looking and listening God. A God who sees and hears. Yes, he is also a transcendent God. The high ruler of heaven. But he is also near as an imminent God who hears us 
every time we pray. Isaiah 66 says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? But this is the one to whom I will hear, he who is humble and contrite in spirit. Every request that Solomon prayed is answered for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate answer to Solomon's question, Will God indeed dwell on this earth? But he did, didn't he? Jesus is Emmanuel, and that name means God with us. We may not see Jesus with our eyes, but he is the most real thing in the universe this morning. The Bible says that in him, all things hold together. Subtract Jesus from the universe, and everything would go flying apart. He is not some bobblehead savior to be smiled at and merely added to an otherwise well-oiled life. He is the mighty sustainer of the entire universe, to whose supreme rule one day we're going to bow, either in this life or the next. God the Son became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. He came to man to, man to live among our fallen race, to die for our sins on the cross, and then to rise again so we could forever live with him. In Christ, God has indeed lived on the earth. So as we finish up today, we can be confident that he is also listening to hear our prayers night and day. He hears the petitions of us when we get overwhelmed by the things in life. He hears the prayers that we utter throughout the day, just during the daily push and pull of life. Night and day, God always hears us when we pray. Allow me to close with a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. He writes, Prayer in itself, apart from the answers that it brings, is a great benefit to the Christian. As the runner gains strength for the race by daily exercise, so for the great race of life we require energy by the holy exercise of prayer. Prayer thins the feathers of God's young eaglets so they can learn to soar above the clouds. Prayer readies God's warriors and sends them out to combat with their muscles braced and firm. The praying believer comes out of his closet even as the sun rises from the chambers of the east, rejoicing like an athlete about to race. So with that said, let us pray. Father, it is hard for me to understand. I know me. I know me better than any of these people in here know me. And to know that you still love me and want to answer my prayers. You have never not answered a prayer of mine that was not for my good. And the ones you have said no to, that was for my good. So I pray, Father, First of all, I pray for me that you would once again ignite in me a greater desire to pray to you. That you would just reveal yourself to everyone in here, O oh God. That we would know that although you set up on heaven, it says you look down upon the sons of men and women. I pray, O oh God, that you give us a fresh just insight. Drive that into our heart. And let us begin from this day on to truly pray to you. For we ask it in your name. Amen.